You're listening to Market Like a Fintech, a podcast on a mission to find out what marketing strategies and tactics the top fintech companies in the industry use to acquire real customers, build a brand and grow revenue. I'm Araminta, your host for today, a marketing consultant at Mint Studios and partner at the Fintech Marketing Hub. In this episode, I'm chatting with Andrea Linehan, Chief Marketing Officer at Currency Fair. Andrea worked for 10 years in the Middle East for the Omani government and then worked as a CMO of a fintech startup called Grid Finance. Now she's at Currency Fair and she's been leading the build of their lead generation and sales enablement infrastructure and is establishing their international payments technology brand. What is Currency Fair? It's a global payment company specializing in FX for both consumers and businesses. They're based in Dublin, Ireland, and have raised a total of $24.5 million throughout all their rounds. They recently acquired payments company Assembly in Australia and are now looking to expand their suite of products. Let's hear from Andrea. Hi, Andrea. I know that you sit on the CMO Council Board And that must mean that you must meet a lot of CMOs. I'm wondering, just out of curiosity, what is the most common question you get from fellow CMOs and uh, marketing managers? Oh, that's a great question. I I was actually part of a a panel interview yesterday with fellow CMOs, and it seems to be the same pain point over and over again. How do we stop this short-tenure burnout that's happening amongst CMOs. And it seems to be the red thread is that there's expectations of the CMO that are unclear. There's ambiguous goals and objectives in place that is coming from the top down. And there's too much of a gulf between um, the CEO and the CMO. And that can be quite frustrating. But the interesting thing with that is there's a real opportunity, particularly in Uh, fintech marketing for CMOs to bridge that gap Um, because we are selling products that are obviously in their nature financial right and everything's uh, it's all about numbers and returns on investments and and all of these things that helps us to bridge the educational gap I think between CMOs and uh, CFOs so we have an opportunity to be to lead the way as fintech CMOs into solving that But that just seems to be, for all the years that I've been in marketing and uh, a CMO, that problem seems to be the the number one. Yeah, that's very interesting. And we're going to get into that a bit more, uh, CMOs and and the role of that in a fintech. But before, I also know you trained as an accountant and I haven't met many like accountants, marketing managers, like uh, the mix of the two. And I think that in fintech, that must be super useful. So I'd, I'd love to hear kind of how that's benefited you and uh, yeah, in general, how does an accountant and a marketing, where do those two meet? Something that I have found has really benefited me throughout my career. I did as an undergrad study finance and accounting. I realized once I got my graduate degree that life as an accountant was not for me. So I was one of a very small number of people in my class that decided not to go and do the four years with a uh, one of the big four consultants. And I, I decided to move off to the Middle East and just try a few different things. And I, I fell into marketing. And I'll be honest, I originally saw marketing as that fluffy discipline. I was I'm guilty of that. But once I got into it, I was blown away by actually how 
complex it really is. And that mix of, you know, the needing to have the creative and the quant side and, you know, really be um, center brained was exceptionally challenging. And uh, my respect level for marketers really went up and I had a lot to learn. I was very fortunate that I had a lot of great opportunities to learn and I had a very steep learning curve in marketing. So when I returned to Ireland, I hadn't planned to get into fintech. Um, again, I, I just happened to, to get exposed to the industry and thought it was quite exciting. But I've also throughout my career have ended up with CEOs, even from my early 20s, that were all accountants. And it's very typical that CEOs, not just in fintech, but in a lot of different industries, do tend to come from the finance track. So I, I started to see where I was really struggling to speak the language to get with these finance CEOs for them to really understand around marketing as an investment. It was still very much this cost and expense line in in the budget. And I said, if I really want to get buy-in and approval for some of these big investments I want to make, then I'm going to have to speak the vernacular. I'm going to have to speak the language. So that was definitely something that nudged me to go and get my qualification as a management accountant. But not just so I could speak to CEOs. I It absolutely has benefited me hugely in my own day-to-day because I do look at my marketing investments in a different way. It's not just about return on investment. You know, I am thinking it makes me think about the wider impact of all of these on the business. What does everything we do, um, how will it influence the runway for the business? The, you know, how partners, whether it's a bank looking to give a give our company a business loan, you know, which would be the CFO's job to, to look after that. But it means my brain is thinking about these things. So immense volatility in revenue, for instance, which I have direct influence of, also impacts our CFO's um, negotiating power when she's sitting with the, the bank to bring on debt capital for the business. You know, and this helps to bridge that gap for me when I'm sitting at the leadership table to be able to say, look, my, my decisions have wider consequences here. And that's really important. So from a credibility perspective, that goes a long way. Yeah, that's pretty much what you said, right? You're like the perfect bridge between kind of the finance side and the marketing side. And that's what fintech is. And I like what you're saying that like a big part of marketing, a lot of it is intangible or difficult to measure. And since you have that finance background, you can kind of help explain why that is and maybe justify the investment, which is what you're saying. And which is probably what a lot of marketers struggled with, you know, why are we spending so much money on that TV ad? Brand awareness? <laughs> you have to have a, you, you know, how to kind of explain that, right? In, in With numbers. And if you, if you take that brand awareness conversation and link it to brand value, brand equity, and what that means for the valuation of the company of a whole, as a whole and, you know, link it to the reality of when a, a business is being uh, valued, the brand piece is um, epically important and investors of all levels of sophistication are going to be looking at that. And the moment you steer that conversation to there, all of a sudden then all of those brand awareness TV commercials make complete sense and there isn't the kind of pushback and questions about it. You know, but it, it is up to us as marketers to find those ways to present what we're doing, that it makes sense to not just the bottom line, but also the bigger picture of what the business is trying to achieve. And, you know, there are 
brand valuation is an ISO certified activity now, you know, so we we have the um, statistics and the certification to back these things up uh, and we need to lean in and lean on those a lot more. Yeah, definitely. And we'll also talk a bit about this um, in a few minutes. But also uh, on your personal website, you talk about fractional CMOs, which I think are a very interesting concept. So would you mind just briefly telling us what a fractional CMO is and what they do? Would you Are you a fractional CMO? You're a full-time CMO, right? Or do you I'm a full-time offer? CMO. And the, the fractional CMO is something, obviously, it's not something that I have coined. It is the fractional C-suite positions have actually um, for a long time been more leaning towards um, fractional CFOs. And it's only uh, in more recent years that a fractional CMO has come about. And essentially, um, it's used for in a number of ways. One, it does tend to be cost related. So oftentimes businesses can't actually afford to bring in a full time CMO. They're very well paid people. But the business is in desperate need of that level of guidance and vision and strategy within the business. And the other side of it is a lot of businesses do tend to be led by more technical founders or CEOs, whether they are finance, technology, engineering, product. That just does tend to statistically be the case. So they don't have the C-suite level of understanding or experience around what marketing vision that the business needs. So bringing in a factional CEO, which is essentially somebody that would come in and work sometimes project by project or maybe on a contractual or part-time basis over a short, medium, long term that can help in a cost-effective way to help the CEO and the leadership team um, get access to that kind of marketing vision and strategy. So it, it works quite well until the business is in a place where it can actually bring on a full-time CMO. So it's a really effective way to help businesses to box above their weight, essentially, on the marketing side. But we'll see. I think we're going to see more and more of that um, over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've met quite a few myself and, and it aligns quite well with, you mentioned this in a recent interview that don't waste time learning things that people have spent decades learning, right? What's the point in trying to learn marketing from the ground up when you can hire a fractional CMO who will be a lot more efficient and a lot more worth it, right? This is essentially why fractional CMOs are worth it. Yeah. And it's, it's also, people tend to bring on a marketing person as an advisor on the board or just an advisor in general. And I think on that same interview, I was saying, this is well and good, but you need somebody who's able to help the business follow through on execution and help follow through on the day-to-day bits. Because strategy strategy is easy. It's the execution that is the real challenging part. Sure. And I think this is really important. That's what a fractional um, CMO can do. It can help the business set the strategy, but follow it right through to execution and the measurement and all of those things that the CEO and the rest of the leadership team need to be able to see. And because the reality is even the marketing team that might already be in place, you know, they're only as good as the most senior person that they have in their marketing function. And, you know, it's it's not feasible or fair to to, uh, lean on the CEO or the other leadership team members to try and bring the the training and the education of the marketing piece up because they don't have it themselves. So, you know, if you really want to level up and bring that level of expertise into your business, you're going to have to bring it in. And it's just an affordable way to do that. 
Yeah, I think it's a very good approach. I know some of our listeners are startup, fintech startups that are just setting up right now, and they're probably in this position. They want to hire a CMO, but they can't afford a full time. And they're thinking, you know, let's hire a fractional CMO. So what would you, I don't know if you have any advice or where could they get started? Where do you find fractional CMOs on, on maybe on your CMO council board or... Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of dedicated fractional CMO associations or companies setting up. They're becoming much more prevalent. I think there is one of the the oldest standing companies. I think they're actually called Outside Leader. I'll I'll find sure. it and share share with your listeners. And it's a mu- that's much more organized, structured, almost outsourcing company for fractional CEOs or CMOs. Apologies. And but then you'll have um, more casual um, associations or groups on LinkedIn of fractional CMOs. Um, so there's a few different ways um, that you can access them. Like The most important thing, though, before you even go looking for one is decide what it is that you actually need them to do. There's a couple of different things. Oftentimes for early stage fintech startups, a lot of what they might need at that stage is actually somebody to help balance their leadership team out when they're going out to speak to investors because investors are very savvy. And they understand that if you don't have somebody who knows what they're talking about on the marketing side, it doesn't matter how slick your product or service is. If you can't sell the thing, their investment is at risk. So a lot of the times, you know, as we know, investors are looking at the, the founding team and they're wanting to see, are all the discipline disciplines covered enough here? Is there enough expertise across the board? So if that's what the gap that you need to fill, then, you know, make sure that that proposition that um, you're going out to look for is is super defined. If you're looking for a fractional CMO, because you need someone to help you build out your marketing function, you need somebody who can specialize in the talent acquisition side and give guidance over um, what are the roles that are required. That is obviously another very specific ask or project. And then on the other side, it might just be that your leadership team needs to be brought upon. They need to be educated themselves. So they're, I think, defining exactly what you want the uh, fractional CMO to do is what's important. There's no point saying we have a gap. We need a fractional CMO to come in and essentially do everything. You need a very um, specific brief. And then you need to obviously understand what your budget is. And oftentimes a good way to start there is look and go out and see what uh, full-time CMO roles are being hired for. I'm going to say, right, if that is the, a salary for a full-time CMO at this level of a business and at this level of experience in the UK, for instance, or in France or wherever it might be, and say, okay, well, we can't afford that, but we could afford 20% of that, which means that, you know what, we need a fractional or we can afford a fractional CMO for one day a week four days a month, whatever it is, and start there. And all of a sudden your brief starts to take shape. And it's like anything, put your marketing head on. As soon as you know the persona of fractional CMO you have, go out then and look for that specific person. And it becomes less of a needle in a haystack then. That's very good advice. I think that's really useful to people to people who are listening. And then going back to what we we talked about before, you know, marketing is seen often as an expense. And I think with COVID and everything, marketing managers have especially felt that, right? Uh, the first thing, the first budget that was cut was the marketing one. Like to fellow uh, marketing managers and CMOs, how can we make sure that our CEOs take us seriously and and make sure they don't cut the budgets or they maybe are willing to enter discussions and see, okay, why is this? How can we adjust? How can we make sure that we keep funding marketing? 
we have a responsibility as marketers to help meet the CEO or CFO halfway um, and try and speak their language. Now, it's not feasible for everybody to go out and do it, get chartered management accountant qualification. But there are very free and um, accessible ways that we as marketers can use the vernacular and the language that um, CEOs and CFOs can really understand so that they can start attributing what marketing do to the fundamental investment side of the business and not just as an, an as an expense. You know, and the very first one I'd say, you know, look at a PL, the revenue line is the very first line that, that you will see on it. Revenue is obviously very heavily attributed to marketing. Um, we have the biggest influence of it. But if we have those discussions with CEOs and CFOs and say, well, look, in order to make sure that there isn't major volatility around the revenue line, we don't want that because why? It scares investors. It increases our risk profile. It increases our, our impacts, our credit profile, which then as a CEO, good CFO will obviously at the very basic level understand that that obviously means that in terms of debt negotiation, capital acquirement, all of this gets impacted. All of a sudden, then the CEO and CFO are looking at revenue and marketing's direct influence over that from a different lens. And these are simple concepts that I think if, if um, marketers took the time to really understand, um, it puts us in a, in a very powerful position. And all of a sudden, then there um, that cost cutting, let's just reduce marketing conversation becomes um, a deeper one. It's also, and I'd love our colleagues on the other side, the CEOs and the CFOs, to also meet us halfway and to understand a bit more. It has to be a two-way street, but we can't force them to do that. But if we come halfway, there's more likelihood that they will come halfway. Now, I'm very fortunate My in Currency Fair, our CFO really understands marketing, understands this as an investment, is curious about it, wants to understand the return on investment, the gray areas and the black and white areas, which means that we can have real cooperative conversations. But we both make sure that our teams are understanding it also, that we're not just having those conversations at C-suite level. It's really important that when I'm talking to my team, that I help to give them comfort around having those conversations with their level counterparts on the finance side because it's frightening most marketers an email comes in from the finance team and it's like you know later put that to later and that's just um it's like anything we procrastinate the things that we are unsure about that we don't understand enough about but if we can bridge that gap of understanding all of a sudden that becomes a very open conversation but you know that's that's training that's education and it has to be driven from both sides This episode is sponsored by Growth Gorilla, a growth marketing agency focused exclusively on working with fintech startups and scale-ups. Taking a holistic approach to driving growth, they have worked with over 25 brands. From crowdfunding to automated business finance, you'll be in a safe pair of gorilla-sized hands. Check them out at growthgorilla.co.uk. Ready to catalyze your fintech's growth? Yeah, that makes uh, that makes complete sense. And I like what you're saying about working with a CEO, CEO or a founder that understands marketing. And I think also that's what differentiates fintech companies from banks, because I don't know if you've, you, you've heard this too, but in banks, also the marketing department is not taken as seriously. And maybe what's very different with fintech companies is that fintech understand 
the value of marketing and they take it very seriously and just look around you, Klarna, Monzo, all the fintech companies, Pension B, they're really going all out with their marketing and they're taking it, they're, it's like they're valuing their customers more. And it's not just TV ads, it's content marketing, it's influencer marketing, it's, it's stuff that is a mo- much more, focuses on adding value rather than just selling, selling, you know, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best, right? Would, would you agree? I, I do agree. And I think that has worked very well and it'll continue to work. But there's a couple of things that um, I think we in fintech are going to be faced with. And that's the reality of consolidation and fintechs becoming those big players. So we as a sector have marketed ourselves collectively as challengers to traditional financial institutions, challengers to banks. We're different But now what we're seeing in the market happening is fintechs are becoming banks. They're getting their banking licenses. They're partnering with these big institutions. So all of a sudden we're telling consumers we are, you know, we are the other choice, you know. And in a lot of places, and we've seen a lot of um, bank bashing that has gone on over the years and all of these big marketing tactics. And now, and, you know, we've built up all of this trust and credibility. And now consumers and, and business customers are saying, wait a minute you're now becoming one of those, you know, you're telling us not to trust that you're the ones to trust, but now you're one of those. So we have to really be careful here around the industry, the fintech industry brand as a whole and making sure that as we become banks ourselves, get these licenses, partner with them, that we're very open around that, um, the why of that and have a very succinct narrative around that um, because consumers are savvy and, you know, if we if we don't spell it out for them as why this is good for them, um, just, you know, putting the, the, the name bank onto a fintech might be a really exciting thing, but it does raise questions in the consumer's mind. They left a bank to come to a fintech who's now become a bank. What's going on? So th- this is going to be an interesting five to 10 years for that reason. That's very true. And that's why, you know, you don't want to make enemies, really. You just want to be partners, essentially. And this follows on quite well to to my next question, because I kind of want to move on to currency fair now. In a written interview uh, with Leverus, you were talking about, it's not like, it's not how you market a fintech, it's how your customer wants to be marketed to, which is kind of what we were talking about. So I'd love to hear, you know, at currency fair, how are you finding out what how your customers want to be marketed to? What is your approach there? Great question. Uh, You actually touched on us um, earlier in our conversation. It is around uh, providing value beyond just here is our product and our service. And over the last year, that is the major shift that we've made in Currency Fair is really putting emphasis on our content and looking at our content as valuable assets within the business and making sure that what we're doing is servicing our, our customers with useful information that is not always super linked to the product and service. Now, content marketing, this is not new, right? This is not revolutionary, but it's actually incredible how many people are not doing it. So there's a lot of conversations about um, adding value, providing value beyond just the the sales proposition, Um, but very little are actually following through and doing it, which is great because that's great opportunity for those of us who are doing it right now. But this is... It's a challenge because I, I, in that same interview, you know, I referenced the fact that, you know, financial services is inherently boring. It's a utility uh, for helping people get a job done. And we're guilty of it ourselves, a fintech 
marketing how brilliant our products and services are and this is new and it's cool and it's all of this the reality is it's it's just helping the customers get some a job done you know we are just a step along the way and you know we have to we have to remember that because the big bells and whistles and and all of these things that we do around marketing consumers are going to become fatigued of that so you know what? What are we going to uh, rely on afterwards? And I, I also said, uh, I believe in that interview that you know banks are going to uh, catch up uh, technologically. So you know we're not going to be able to fly that flag that that is the big proposition. You know, speed, cost effectiveness, all of that. You know, is no longer going to be a competitive trait anymore. So where else are we going to add value? And it will be on content. It will be on experience. Definitely. As a content marketer, that, that's very exciting uh, to hear. And I completely, like, completely agree. And actually, from what I understand, this is what you did at Currency Fair, right? You used to have a brand marketing team and you've changed it into a content marketing team. Yeah. And so my next question was going to be, you know, why is content so such so important? But you've basically just answered it, which is uh, it's kind of to stand out. Really, that's what you're saying. It's it's to it's like a unique selling point is that we were, we're going to help you. Yeah. We're not just a utility, but we're also part of your lifestyle. And this is what we talk a lot about in fintech, right? Community marketing, building trust. And it's just about having a much stronger relationship. If a, if a customer has to choose between, you know, a company that they trust and they love that adds value, that teaches them a thing or two about finance and one that's just a commodity, then they're probably going to pick the first one, right? Absolutely. And it's been, um, it's the retentive side of it as well. Uh, and certainly in Currency Fair and uh, which was the right thing for, for many years when we were um, scaling really fast and acquiring new customers really quickly. There was much more of an emphasis on acquisition-related content. But, you know, if we really want to exhaust the customer lifetime value, it's the, obviously the retention piece, particularly when you're a utility and a customer can go to any other provider on a whim. We need to make sure that we're thinking about the retentive side of things. And that's thinking about you know, the life cycle that our customer is going through. And it is that, you know, segment of one that you really need to be thinking about when it comes to content and thinking about, you know, when two years pass, five years pass, like a 25-year-old becoming a 27-year-old, becoming a 30-year-old, that's only five years, but it's transformative in that person's life. They're nearly a completely different person, you know, as opposed to a 45-year-old who's then a 50-year-old. And, you know, a content marketer who understands fundamentally that what we need to be providing our customers has to be super relevant to where they are in life is the key to, to retention and to engagement. And, you know, that's all fintechs have been heavily, heavily um, invested in major acquisition numbers because they're the sexy numbers. Yep. Oh, we now have so many million new customers but, you know, how many are sticking around? And I, I'll even, I was only thinking about this last night. You know, I've, you know, a Revolut account, for instance. I've also gotten an N26 account. I, you know, opened to quite a few of them. And I do use my Revolut quite a lot, but I still have my traditional banking account. And while it might be really exciting that all of these fintechs are talking about how many customers they have in each jurisdiction, how many of those customers have not let go of their traditional accounts and they're holding on to both? So, you know, there's, um, I think, real, true adoption is going to happen when those traditional, and I'm using bank accounts as an example, but when people actually decide to walk away from their traditional 
bank account and fully adopt as the only option these new fintech um, services. But at the moment, they're still holding on to both. That's that's true. I mean, I think we, we we talk a lot about this a lot in in the fintech space, and I think two things will help fintechs. Time still quite new, right? With N twenty six pulling out of the UK and things like that, that you know we need more time to trust these neo banks. And also, there's a lot of specific problems they need to solve. Like one of my friends, uh, he's moved everything to the traditional bank account simply for his credit score and also for a mortgage. So obviously. Traditional banks are still very necessary for big life events. So maybe once our neo banks are able to fix that problem, then you know, then we'll be able to use them as a main. So it's just, I think it's hopefully just time and maybe a few more problems to be solved. But yeah, you're right. It's uh, it's also a question of customer retention. I see, I do see some fintechs doing this really well, like Pension B, uh, because obviously this is pensions, right? This is for life, and so they customer retention is like their number one metric. And so it's kind of, it also depends on your business model and, and what you're aiming for. But yeah, both are, are incredibly important. And actually, I like, well, you're mentioning content marketing. We're talking a lot about content marketing. And I know that you recently launched your B2B proposition, right? Our currency fair. And content marketing is a big part of that. And I'm, I'm curious how, because with B2C, it's mostly, well, I don't know if it's mostly, but it's a lot like SEO, people researching. With B2B, how are you, what is your approach with content marketing? Well, the first piece that was very different um, at Currency Fair when I came in, and because it was B2C driven, and I was specifically brought in to, to pivot it to B2B, was that there wasn't an inbound marketing or content marketing approach. And this was really content was about brand brand awareness. So we didn't have an inbound marketing, any kind of technology in place. So I introduced HubSpot, which is um, the obvious go-to for that. And the second thing that we didn't have in place in Currency Fair was um, a sales team. So that is obviously something on the B2B side that's very different. So we have excellent brand awareness as Currency Fair in the consumer cohorts internationally. But we nobody knows us for our, our business proposition. So you... It's starting from scratch. It's almost like going in, at, you know, at the startup level. I'm going to say, right, we now need to become thought leaders in the payment space for B2B and beyond just currency exchange, because our, our payments proposition is much broader than that. So we literally have to start from scratch from that perspective. And ironically, for those in the B2B world that do know Currency Fair as a brand, we almost need to help them unlearn what they've learned about our brand to date and now start to position ourselves as these thought leaders. So it is starting from very much top of the funnel content. It is about lead generation. We were never doing lead generation before. It was the first time we had visibility over a potential customer was when they actually filled out our account setup form. Whereas now, obviously, using the likes of HubSpot allows us to start to bring in um, those leads with top of the funnel content, and nurture them through, hand them over to a salesperson when they're they're ready for um, an FX conversation or a payments conversation. Um, and it's transformative. And our business as a whole has had to really shift because that obviously has, we had to do, try to integrate that the process, that technology stack into our existing customer service and onboarding and CRM um, stack. So there was a huge piece of work to, to do that. I also then brought in B2B content marketing experts and writers who are able to take the sophistication of the content that would be relevant for B2B because the, the 
the tone, the topics on the B2C side is going to be incredibly different to what that needs to be on the B2B. And it isn't fair to expect a B2C content writer or copywriter to be able to just flip the switch and all of a sudden be able to research and write for B2B. So you need to be able to resource and and bring in the skill set for that as well, which is what we've done. And we have a phenomenal team in place that can do all of that. But it's it takes time. It's not something you do overnight. We've, we've, we've taken a good year to get there. Yeah, it's it's refreshing to hear that you understand that it it's is too because I'm I am both a B2C and a B2B, but I know they're completely different. And I work with other writers. I usually, you know, it's like, okay, either you're B2C or you're B2B because it's it's different approaches. And that's why I'm asking about the content marketing approach, because it's completely different. Like you're gonna be producing content for the sales calls often, mm-hmm. right? You're gonna be producing content to answer very specific questions that customers will never be curious about. So it's a very different approach and it requires a very different strategy. We could talk about this forever, but I just wanted to ask you another like uh, question about your your strategy at uh, Currency Fair, which is your sponsors. I know you've sponsored uh, the Asian Gaelic Games. Uh, you've sponsored a former French rugby team player and an Irish marathon runner. So really all over the world in the Olympic Games, right? So I'd love to hear like your your approach to sponsorships and yeah, what what, what are your thoughts? behind those uh, strategies? These were all very, very fun sponsorships and very relevant, very relevant to our audience, very relevant to the consumer brand approach and very, very effective for us. And, you know, I, I have said before about the fact that, you know, we are a utility. Our customers don't get to touch and feel and see their money moving. It's here one day. And then when they open their account, they can see that it's there the next day. So to be able to provide something tangible, something that they can resonate with gives a lot of comfort and it helps with that trust and that credibility. And when you are a fintech, you know, people are and they don't really understand what you are, what you do. And the brand is young enough And maybe if there isn't the kind of relationship with the leaders, you know, if your CEO isn't a famous founder that's in the media all the time, they're looking for some to attach to a personality, to a someone to really just understand who it is that you are. So they could say, okay, if they're attached to that, I trust that or that person that resonates with me. Okay, I feel comfortable now. And that's really what the the big driver there was. And look, that's that's not fintech marketing, really. That's fundamental to any types of, of sponsorships. Um, but that was the angle for us. We're moving away uh, from that now. A big reason is that we are moving more towards B2B and B2B to C. So um, associating our brand with sponsor or ambassadors like that won't be as prevalent going forward Uh, and actually as part um, of a big announcement we made last week which is that we have taken on uh, investment from Standard Charter Bank and as part of that we'll be merging with another payments company called Assembly Payments based in Australia and what that does is accelerate our movement into the overall B2B and B2B to C payment space as part of that, that's going to um, mean a rebrand for us. So what I'm going to be doing is retaining the Currency Fair brand for our consumer customers and our micro businesses, freelancers who really just need us as a currency exchange utility and product provider. 
But on this new um, merger with Currency Fair and Assembly Payments, we're now going to do a, a rebrand um, over the next several months. We hope to launch that in the summertime uh, because the reality is what that now side of the business is going to do is it needs to be something completely different. The conversations we'll be having, who we'll be talking to, how we present ourselves is, is going to be night and day to the consumer side. And it's been fine up until now to be able to try and have the, the business and the consumer side, you know, even fighting for attention on the same social media channels. That has been okay for now. But as we shift into the, the payment side, uh, the bigger payment side of, of fintech, it's not possible where it'll cause immense confusion to our followers, even just on social media, if we're trying to have those two very separate conversations. Um, so that's a, an exciting thing for, for me and my team and the business as a whole to to be looking at that project for the next few months. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And um, yeah, that's going to be a big project. But I think I'm seeing this, you know, if you're going to be B2C and B2B, sometimes it makes sense to just have two, two separate brands, because if not, as you say, it confuses people. Um, well, this is a fa uh, fascinating conversation. I have one more question for you, Andrea. You mentioned also in, in other interviews that that what you like about, well, the most important when managing a team is, you know, hire experts and then get out of their way. And I, I love that approach. I think it makes complete sense. You're more focused on coaching. So yeah, can you tell us maybe like, what are your day-to-day -day activities right now as more of uh, hiring the experts, let's, let's say? Uh, actually, uh, right now at the moment, a big piece of it is the fact that we've just launched um, yeah. or just announced this merger. So thinking about what that means for my team as a whole in terms of um, splitting out these two brands, because all of a sudden we're going to have what started off as a consumer marketing team who then has built out to become a hybrid of you know B2C and B2B marketing with some specialists and some generalists. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to have two separate brands that we're going to be managing and you know we'll be smart and manage it all on the same MarTech instance where possible. But that the switching costs of that for, for my team is going to be quite immense. So uh, where I'm spending a lot of my uh, time now over these next few weeks is building out that, that talent pipeline and what are the skill sets that I will need at all levels of my team, at senior management level, right down to um, execution level um, and specialist level to be able to manage those two brands and those two very different journeys and propositions and, and all of that right now. So I am very fortunate that my team, a lot of the times um, they say to me, Andrea, you don't, we've got this, you don't need to be on this meeting. And when I hear that, it is like, yes, Amazing. you know, excellent. And I have absolute epic confidence in, in their ability. And they come back to me now if there's roadblocks, or if there's something that need, they need me to go in and play bad cop on. That's that's a generally my role. I say, guys, you're always, you'll be always the good cops. If you need me to come in and be bad cop for whatever situation, just call me in uh, and, I, and I'll do that. And that's a beautiful position to be in because it does now allow me to uh, spend more time on those bigger picture world domination type strategies. Uh, and my team need me to be spending my time there because what comes out of that is the guys, okay, here's the vision, here's the path. Now let's talk about what the execution strategies are for this. And, um, you know, it just helps to build out a bit of a, a longer, a longer tail path as opposed to being reactive. And that's something that I, I always try and pivot my functions and my departments and teams away from is being reactive all the time because it's stressful. It's stressful for teams and it's stressful for everybody in the business. 
So, so I, that is very enjoyable, I have to say, at the moment. The one thing I'm missing, though, with all of this working from home is I, I write my best strategies when I'm sitting in a cafe, mm-hmm. um, you know, people watching. And uh, in Ireland, we, we don't have that at the, at the moment. So, but I do. My team give me give me plenty of space to be able to just take a step back and just think about the bigger picture. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Really enjoyed it. I mean, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find all the information and show notes over at fintechmarketinghub.com. If you'd like to come on the podcast or just share some feedback, don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We're always looking for ways to improve the podcast. That's all for today. See you next time.